0: Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to the standard.
1: Hey Jason, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. It's a true pleasure to be here.
0: So just take us through, you know, your path to you know becoming a chief now. Um, where where did it all start?
2: Yeah, yeah. I was fortunate enough that when I was growing up, I lived in a small. I still live in the same small town, about an hour outside of St. Outside of St. Louis, called Sullivan, Missouri. And I had a cousin who was eight years older than me, and he was a junior volunteer firefighter. He was sixteen. I was eight, and I I, I distinctly remember this happening when I got hooked, and I I was over at his house. And I think I was spending the night, but anyway, I remember being at his house and he had an old single cab, long bed, orange Chevrolet with the white cab. I remember seeing those running around, you know, they were blue and red and orange, green. And he, that's what he drove. And, uh, at his house, we were in town and at that time, the sirens would go off if there was a fire, because we didn't have pagers even back then. just the sirens. If you were 18, you could have a fire phone, and when there was a fire, the operator would dial a number, and all the phones in those houses would be one continuous ring until you picked up the receiver. It wasn't an intermittent receiver. It was a fire phone. But anyway, sirens go off. You would call into the operator, literally zero. You would dial zero, and you would give a code, and the code would be 7-Up, Dr. Pepper, Snickers, Whatever it was, right? A&W root beer. It was always something goofy. And uh, then the operator would tell you what the call was and where it was. And so this all happened. And I got in the truck with him and drove to the firehouse. And uh, I sat out in the truck and listened to a scanner while he went on this call. And I think it was a brush fire, so he wasn't gone very long. And from that point on, I knew that's all I wanted to do. And so when I turned 13, I begged and pleaded my parents to sign the application waiver to let me join the fire department which they uh, eventually relented a lot with my cousin's help at that time. And, and so I got on and, and I started doing it. And, you know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And my favorite part was always walking into the firehouse and it had a smell. And I've never gotten tired of that smell for 32 years. That smell still takes me back to the mid eighties as a young kid coming in. And you know and there were benefits, there were perks. We got pulled out of school. <laughs> you know we we would get pulled out of school for brush fires. We wouldn't typically get pulled out for house fires. And back then there weren't a lot of people didn't care about us kids as much as they do today. They pull up in these three-quarter-ton military surplus pickups with wooden benches in the back of the bed and uh, no seatbelts, and we would pile into these pieces of equipment. And zoom off to these brush fires, pile out with rakes and blowers, and do our thing and, and get to it. And one of my most memorable times, though, was doing an acquired structure burn after school. Uh, and I remember exactly what I was wearing. I had a, a green IZOD polo shirt and a pair of blue jeans, and I had a pair of Puma tennis shoes. It's just the things that stamp your life, right? And I remember specifically, I was that's exactly what I was wearing. It was a fall night, probably in October. It was a little bit chilly in the evening, it was dark and they put a bunch of tires and pallets in the back of this house. And we had these old canvas coats that didn't hardly snap. They had some of the hooks that worked because we got all the crappy stuff. Right. And then my helmet, um, was a piece of work. We didn't have a lot of money. You know, we were barely, uh, we, we did fundraisers to buy most of our equipment at that time. And so the helmet was a motorcycle helmet and they had riveted a plastic visor on the back of it. And that was what I wore uh, with these pull-up boots that were three sizes too big into this acquired structure burn. And it was fantastic. It was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was great. I got in trouble a couple times, one time in particular with my mom, because uh, there was a flu fire behind my house, and it was snow on the ground. I remember it it was snowing. And the juniors had these big, puffy, like nylon quilted jumpsuits. And that was what we wore because we, we didn't really have gear. That's what they gave us. And so I, the sirens go off. I hit zero, and the operator says, code, 7-Up. Uh, uh, you've got a flu fire at 272 George Street. That's right behind me, you know. So I pile on. I get those things on, and, and uh, I go tromp. And those, remember the orange ball gloves? Ever seen those? That's what we had. orange those orange balls, they melt. I mean, they're awful, right? <laughs> and, and then in the wintertime, they literally would freeze hard. You, you know, snap them on the table. And uh, I, run be- I run behind my house and up about four houses, and they got a flu fire. Of course, I'm just standing there. I can't do anything. And we get the flu fire put out. And I'm not kidding you. We got done with the flu fire, and the sirens go off again. And it's a house fire across town. Well, I just jump in the fire truck and go. My mom has no idea where I'm at. No clue for like three hours. Absolutely no idea. Yeah. That didn't go good at all. Not at all.
0: Well, At the time, right? Beg for forgiveness later. Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I had made it through.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I ended up getting my EMT license out of high school, uh, right out of high school. And I look back now and I look at my 19 year old son and think about that was the age I was when I was a full time EMT trying to get a fire department job. Holy cow. I would no more want him taking care of me, at you know, at nineteen. I can only imagine what the people I had to go pick up thought of me. You know, it's like wow. And uh, so I got my paramedic license and uh, got hired in Webster Groves uh, Fire Department in St. Louis County in '96, and then in 2000 went to Florissant. And um, you know, I've had a I've had a very blessed career so far, and I don't regret one day of it.
0: We've sat in your class before, and one of your big topics you talk about is courage. And, you know, we, we think of courage, and I think the public thinks of courage when they think of firemen as, uh, that you know, going inside burning buildings. But you're referencing different areas, you know, of more or less like the inner workings of the job, inside the fire station, stuff like that. So I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about, you know, the courage you talk about in your class.
2: uh, with informal conversations, you know, gatherings like this at dinners or around the bar or in a, in a lobby somewhere. And I just remember having a conversation some years ago with a group of firefighters, and they were asking – we were talking about the challenges of an officer and the things people complain about and all the Mickey Mouse stuff that comes along with that. And I just remember saying, you know, I've never had a member complain about making an interior attack. I've never had them come out and go – Chief, that's crap. I'm never doing that. That's not fair. It's not right. You know, it's too cold. It's too hot. I've never had them come out and do that. You know, I've never had that that problem. And so, it occurred to me that you know what we do, and, and courage gets thrown a lot around a lot in the fire service. And I took a good hard look at who's really courageous in the fire service in general. And what I what I came to realize is that crossing the threshold is easy by and large for the majority of people in the fire service that's that's what they sign up to do you know whenever i was coming up as a as right out of high school backdraft was popular you know that was just coming that that had just come out and ironically enough i've got people that work on my shift now that never even heard or seen it so (laughs) you know unbelievable right and uh my, my the, the people on my shift make them watch it. They don't have a choice. They have to watch that in ladder 49 and uh, and towering Inferno they make' them, it's like training but uh, you know we we all sign up for you know when you get when you're first getting your paramedic license, it's the big car crashes and the traumas and all the things that you see on TV uh, the fires that's what you look for is to cross the threshold. That's what you think that job is, but the courageous part. Are the firefighters and officers that are willing to put their i guess their popularity and sometimes friendships um although probably not that doesn't damage them long term but it certainly can short term uh to do what's right and sometimes that means stopping an inappropriate conversation on the front bumper at the kitchen table which we all have been drawn into those talks. We've all drawn in because that's what the group does. That's what's cool. And it's hard. It takes more courage, I think, to stop those types of actions, to do what's right when it's not popular, to discipline or hold somebody accountable when it's a popular person or a friend or a highly respected person. It's not popular to stick up for the person that calls the ambulance five times in a week, for whatever reason. Those things are not easy, but the cur- the, the people that are cur- courageous are the ones that don't condone those activities, and they they don't ignore it because there's some that just kind of ride the fence, right? They just kind of sit along and they watch it. And they're not going to take either side, uh, but the courageous ones are the ones that they put their neck out there. W- w- fitness, it, you know, you just look at. What are the consequences of not being fit in the fire service? You argue that there should be uh, fitness benchmarks. We've got to get some courageous chiefs and officers that say, hey, we're going to take this to the next level. And we're going to get these people help. And we're going to get a program that, that makes them fit for duty. Because let's face it, you, your family depends on them. Your family depends on them. And and so the ones that are courageous are the ones that are doing the things that aren't easy. They're not comfortable. They're not convenient. And they're not fun. And there's few people out
0: there. So it's not the easiest thing, though, to have these conversations in the firehouse, especially like as a young officer. I mean, I've only been an officer for a few years now. Uh, I feel like it, it. I don't shy away from it, but... But if you don't have, like, that experience or confidence or, you, you know, it's like social intelligence, too. I mean, there is a fine balance of having a tough conversation with a vet firefighter that's a salty guy that everybody respects. And to be able to have that conversation with him but still
1: get the like Show them respect.
0: Yeah, but in, you still want to get the buy-in from them too. You have, you have to give him a little. Yeah. I mean, you can go in all hard and be like, nah, that's it. It's my way. You lost him. It's going to be a miserable couple of years. He's going to go somewhere else. It's not going to help anything.
1: He's also going to tell everyone that like, Hey, that's
0: what I'm saying. It's just, and, and it might be untrue. You know, the reputation might not be deserved, but it's just, those are tough things to do. Like, so, you know, where do you, where do you get your experience from in doing that? Like, how do you get better at
2: it? I had good mentors. I had good people to teach me, and I've witnessed what happens. Quite frankly, I have been a victim of not having those hard conversations, and those consequences may not be a day away, a week away, a month away. It might be six months from now that you uh, have have to pay the consequences for not having those difficult conversations because the more you let something continue – and it's not addressed. That no matter how big or small it is, it gets bigger and harder to address down the road. Because now all of a sudden uh, you've let the you've let the member come in late five minutes more than once. Now on the fifteenth time, there's disciplinary action. Well, wait a minute. It's not been a problem till now, and that's just a, that's an that's an easy thing to handle. Now you 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 throw in there uh, your members not treating your community members not right or bullying in the firehouse or not training. You know, a good example is when I got promoted to battalion chief, I had a captain that was on the tail end of his career. He'd kind of checked out, but man, in his prime, he was like, everybody talks about it. He was like hard charging. He got his bachelor's degree. He was dialed in. I mean, he was into it. Something happened. He started tuning out, but he got really mad at me uh, because he, he, He took a day off, a vacation day, on a day we were doing ice rescue training. So when he came back to work, we went and did ice rescue training for him. And it really made him mad. Uh, Now, I will tell you this. I was the victim in the water, okay? He wasn't going to do it by himself, and I think he hated that more than having to go do the training, you know, because then he couldn't couldn't argue or fight or be mad about it, right? But for so long in our department – and it was just a culture, and we've got the last two chiefs we've had have been phenomenal. I mean, they—the chief we have right now is just—I hope he never retires. I really do. I, I hope the guy stays forever. He's not because he wants to hike the Appalachian Trail. I said, you know what? Just you know, just do it vicariously through everybody else. But he's not buying into that. But we've got a really good chief, and so our our department's changed a lot over the last seven to eight, seven to eight years. But it was not uncommon for to have you know, demanding hands-on training and have members call in sick or take a vacation day to avoid it, and they never had to make it up. The problem with that is it perpetuated, and the the newer, younger members started doing it, and now you get people doing trade time, taking vacation time, knowing they're not going to have to make that training up. Well, I said, sorry, we're not doing it that way, and it only happened a couple times because they know they're going to have to go in the water. Now I was kind of wondering if he'd even come get me, (laughs) but, uh, well, did he, he did? Yeah, he did. He wasn't happy about (laughs) it, but he did. But the, the thing about the hard conversations simply is that, and I, and I learned this from watching others. This is not, I wasn't blessed with these skills. It was observation and, and and failures doing it wrong. Uh, As if I was the youngest volunteer chief at Sullivan, I, I was 24 and I was voted in as chief. I had no clue what I was doing, you know. I and mean, it was literally a popularity contest, and they hated the guy that was in there. So, you know, it was just one of those deals. And, so, and, I, and I, I made so many mistakes as a 24-year-old 20, a has no business being a fire chief. I'm sorry. They they don't. I had no business doing that. None. Zero. I'll be the first to tell you that they couldn't have picked a worse guy to do that job. What was
0: your your interview question like? There was was none. There
2: was none. I got nominated, (laughs) and there was a vote, and they said congratulations. And I thought, ooh, yay, hey, I'm the chief, you know? Oh, my gosh. All the things I talked about today, I screwed all that up, you know? I screwed all that up. And so luckily, luckily – I was smart enough that when it was over, to realize that I did not do a good job, and that uh, and, and I took some constructive feedback that wasn't easy to listen to when it was over, and, and I think I have tried to apply that into my career uh, job, but the hard conversations really, the, it it's never easy, but if you can separate or at least look past. Listen, it's like I said today. Th- this job's not easy. Uh, it's real common for people to talk about how, you know, this job's not that hard. It is. It is that hard. And, and we like to downplay it because that's kind of what firefighters do. You know, I mean, we can chop our arm off and go, it'll be okay. It, you know, I mean, it, it's going to be okay. You know, it's all right. But this job is hard, it, it, and it's indicative of the fact that people come to these conferences, people listen to your podcasts, Fitness is hard. Staying fit for 30 years on the job is not easy. You know, people think that you don't want to eat ice cream or you don't want to do that. It's crap. You do want to eat it, but you just make different choices, right? And it's the same as being an officer. So it's easy to let things slide. It's like when I was a training officer. Well, you just like training. Not every day. No, I don't. I, I don't like doing it every day. It's just your choices are different. You're, you're exactly. It's it's. It's short-term gratification versus long-term gratification. And I'll be honest with you, I, you can, it, and this is kind of off topic, but you can see personalities in the firehouse, the ones that are in incredible debt, struggling at home, poor family life, are the same ones that struggle at work. People argue that with me all the time, but almost, almost every time it comes to ring true at some point. And, and there's just, it's just about choices. It really is.
1: You talk a lot about chasing the kinks. And I think the, the basis of that is kind of just you never want to walk past a problem that, that you know you can fix.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. I like that analogy. I mean, when you, anytime you can relate it to the fire service like that, I think it can resonate with guys, especially yeah. when there's shit going on around the station. It's like, chase the kinks, man. If you got kinks in your line, you're fighting fire, you got a problem. Yeah. You got well, kinks in your crew, you know, like.
1: like even if it's not, it's not, not, it's even not blowing your, right. Even if it's not your line right? Like you, you're you on a fire ground and you see something that you can change. You should change it.
0: That's good. That's a great point.
1: Can you kind of elaborate a little more on that?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. And it's interesting because people probably know me more for officer development and leadership. Well, I like teaching tactics. Uh, that's really what I like to do. It's just hard to compete with the legends that are out there doing it and somehow or another I got this niche and this is what I get asked to do and I love it but I was just trying to relate in a class at one time about what being productive meant because so many times and I worked for a department that being productive was busy work Uh, I was literally told always have a towel in your back pocket so that when the chief came around you could pull it out and wipe something Okay. It didn't matter what you wiped, just wipe something. Okay. And so we literally would carry a towel around. And if somebody said, Hey, the chief's around, you pulled a towel out. And if it was a truck or a wall or a window, it didn't matter. You wiped it. Right. So that's not productive. Okay. That's not productive. And so I tried to figure out a way to relate to firefighters, what being productive means. And quite honestly, to fire officers so that when they go back to their houses, I always had a problem, and we had a captain that, that we worked for, that it was more important to clean the gutters, to blow leaves out of the, brush, br- the bushes uh, than it was to do fire stuff. And it was really frustrating. It's like, I know those things have to get done, but doggone it, we're not that good. We're just not that good to prioritize that way. And so I started thinking about inching classes, And it it just started. It just clicked one day. It's like you know we need to chase kinks. When we're in the firehouse, we need to chase kinks. Whatever those kinks are, everybody has to have latitude and license to fix it, and that should be a responsibility and something that's expected of them. And so we just started talking. I was like, Hey, who's gone to a good engine class? Who's gone? Who's who's gone to a Brian Brush class or an Aaron Fields or an Isaacson or Augustine? Any of these guys that teach the engine work that are known for that whose responsibility is it if there's a kink out in the yard and your team your nozzle team is 35 feet in the building it's whoever sees it first okay i know no i don't know very many firefighters that are uh, unless they're just not very bright they're going to walk past a kink when it's going in the front door now, i can say it's probably happened and it probably happened near my department but it, you chase kinks and that solves the problem. And the way I relate that is, listen, the engine company on the nozzle inside that building has no idea that that kink or two is behind them. There's no, they have no way. And, and quite honestly, if they've got a fog nozzle, they can open the bail and they're still not gonna know, right, because it's based on pressure. Now, if you've got a smooth bore, it'd be a little more obvious, but if you can't see the stream, right, they, they have no idea. And it directly affects the success or failure of that operation. It can mean somebody coming back out of that building or not, not fixing a kink. And so I just told my members and and in the classes, listen, the daily things we do in the firehouse, training, fitness, whatever needs fixed, maintenance, tools, whatever it is, those are kinks that have to be addressed every day by whoever finds it. Now, if a shift is continually leaving us problems, me as your captain, That's what I will take care of. I will handle that for you. But it's not your job to determine whether or not it's worthy of you to take take that problem on or not. If once we step foot in the firehouse and it's seven a.m., whatever problems are there that day, that's our problem now. It's for us to fix. And it's it's been well received. It's worked out pretty well.
0: How do you, as a seasoned fire officer, prioritize your day? I know you touched on a little bit in your class too about. You know, your number one priority is community, but it's not the community, you know, that I think everybody would think it is where you're just doing pub ed and um, going around and, and uh, I don't know, it's just like the normal normal community interactions you get. You have a little twist that you put on it, you know, like, it, yeah, it's community, but in order to serve the community, the highest level, I mean, we've got to be trained to the highest ability.
1: Yeah, I mean, it comes back to that, those three priorities of the mission, the men, the me. So like, yeah, you want to.
0: Great book, by the way. You
1: want to complete the mission, obviously, which is to take care of the community. But you also need to take care of your people so that they can go out and serve the community the way that we're expected to. They should,
2: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting because I've had people try and pigeonhole me on that concept. So basically, you're right. Communities first, when we prioritize our day, or basically what it boiled down to was, it's like, okay, we've got all these things on the schedule. We've got all this stuff that we have to get done. And really, I went to the chief and asked, I said, wh- how do I tell my members what to cancel or what not? To, you know, how do we fit all this in? And so we talked, and we came up, communities first. Now, there are some days that training is going to trump a PR event, depending on what that PR event is. So I've had people try to pigeonhole me in, but as community, your organization or department, your crew, your company, then you're as an individual. Now, there's something like fitness. That's all four. Training. That's all four. There, there. It's not. It's not one or the other. It's there's not. It's not a polarizing thing. But what we wanted to make sure was that, quite honestly, that their free time or washing the boat that they brought in before Labor Day weekend doesn't take precedence over going and installing a smoke detector. You don't put the smoke detector off till after you wash the boat. You go do the smoke detector, then if there's time, you wash your boat. Okay, you don't not do your training for the day until you make all your sales calls, but on your for your side business selling real estate or insurance. Okay, you do your training first, then you do your side job if you've got some downtime. And I really don't want to know about your side job, but don't don't force me to find out about it. Okay, so. Those things are all important. And all it does is it puts our people in a mindset of service. Because, like I mentioned in the class, the, the higher you go in rank, the more people you serve. You, and there's that argument about subordinates, and it's okay to use subordinates. And I don't care if somebody uses subordinate or not. I don't like the word myself um, because I don't feel like I'm above anybody in my department. If uh, We work together. Yes, in rank and authority, responsibility, I, I am above them in that regard, but in skill, knowledge, education, abilities, there's several people that are better at a lot of things than than I am, and I'm subordinate in those areas to them. And so it's kind of a trade-off in that regard. But the the priority, the prior- prioritization of the day was just to give them a template of hey, don't forget why we're here.
1: One thing I think you guys do that's that's awesome is your captains have credit cards that they can can use.
0: Yeah, not just for station stuff. Yeah,
1: just for, like, I mean, when I worked in the Springs, we had cash in the NARC box that if we felt like we needed, we could use it to kind of make someone's day better.
0: Do you take the NARC box and you put it out in front of the yeah. public? And Welcome like, you to can either pick drugs up? It's a buffet or, money. or my, yeah. One or the other.
1: <laughs> you got to sign it out, yeah. though. No, but I think but that is a great idea. Cool.
0: You know, I've heard of station officers having – the ability to just make decisions on their own—how oh, nice that would be, right? Um, to trust, just go
1: to trust the people. Well, they should be. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah, they should. Be, you know, to what do whatever they need to do to make sure the station's running. But to have money set aside and have the expectation that, hey, you know, like you see somebody who's struggling, you know, you're at the store and the card declines, we got it. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, that's a really cool program. I mean, I wish we could have it where we're at.
2: Yeah, so we had a retired fire chief named Jeff Johnson come to our department uh, a few years ago. And I'd met Jeff through the IAFC uh, several years ago. And I've always, I've taken a lot of his classes, followed him, stayed in touch with him. Always thought he had a really neat perspective on and, and some of the things that I talk about are influenced by some of his philosophies and ideas. So he, we brought him in for an officer development day just for our department. It's just our, our officers And it was a game changer for our department. Our chief was like, wow, you know, we're going to start doing some of these things. And one of the things our chief implemented was he gave all of our captains a credit card and it's got a $250 or $500 limit on it. And they're basically given latitude that if you can help somebody, you help them. The other thing they can do with that is if they've got a really busy day and their crew's been busting their hump for several rotations, and he wants to buy him dinner. He can buy him dinner. It's okay. But the whole idea was for them to give back to the community uh, for people that need it. They've bought bought gas for people that were out of gas. They have uh, an interesting story. He didn't use the credit card, but it's in the same spirit. They had a a stroke, a CVA call uh, in our House 3 area. And the closest appropriate hospital is not where the family wanted the patient to go. And there was some contention about that situation. Actually, the daughter called and complained that the ambulance would not take her parent I don't remember, and to where they wanted them to go. And we had explained stroke proto- protocol is what it is, went on and on. Well, my captain at that house, I didn't find all this out till later. The captain at that house uh, noticed that the screen door was damaged. And he took the screen door off, brought it back to the firehouse, figured out what parts it needed, went to the hardware store, bought all the parts, repaired the door, and went and put it and hung it back up. In, those, in that story, I didn't even know that happened until the daughter called back profusely thanking us for the captain that did that. And he didn't do it because she was upset about the thing. He, that's, and there's been other instances of those things happen, and We don't even know about them. And, and a lot of times, if they have to go to the hardware store, they don't use the credit card because we have an account. So we don't even know a lot of you know till it's all said and done. We get the invoice later, but there was a kid in one of the neighborhoods, and I don't remember all the details. But his, his bike got stolen, and it was some kind of special needs family or something of that re, that respect. And they went and bought him a new bike, and and so they're they're able to do those things. If they want to stop at the frozen custard with the ball team up there and pay for the custards, it's all good. And you know, you always get the question: Well, how do you know they're not abusing it? Because the credit card statements come to us. You know, if we, and my chief said this, he said, if I can't trust my company officer with a $500 credit card, then we promoted the wrong person. And it's not been, it's been more of an issue than not using it, than using it too much. We're trying, hey, you look for more opportunities that are out there, find them, you know,
0: utilize them. You really just don't want to wait for problems to come to you. Go out and solve them. Like be proactive, right? Don't be reactive.
1: It goes back to the kinks thing.
0: 100%. Right. There
1: there are problems everywhere and I think maybe we've trained ourselves to like kind of you
0: don't want to go looking for them, <laughs> making problems, but there are problems. You're right. There are problems everywhere and it's just like be proactive. If you see something, go out and make a difference.
2: Yeah, uh, I've got a slide. I've got five principles that I talk about and one of those principles is being aggressive. And in the fire service, we normally equate that to crossing the threshold. We've kind of come full circle here. And although that's true, and we do expect our members to be aggressive on the fire ground, we also expect that same aggressiveness when they run an EMS call, when they run an invalid assist call, a CO. And what I mean by aggressive is they're not taking shortcuts. They're, they're checking everything. They get a service call. They pull the panel off the furnace. They're checking the, the squirrel. That's a whole other subject. It's hilarious. It's a millennial thing, but, um, the squirrel cage, Davis, I'm sorry to get off topic, but it's so, I've got so many of these funny stories and it, you know, we're, we're hiring these new kids with no mechanical attitude and no fault of their own, no fault of their own. It's just this society they've been brought up in and they go to a service call and the captain tells the kid, Hey, check the squirrel cage. And the guy goes, what's a squirrel cage? So they had to show him the, the blower motor, but, um you know we expect them to take the panels off of those units we expect them to take the the electric tester for different types of calls and we expect them and we expect to be aggressive on everything including public relations it's easy and it's coming up in a few days october and we are absolutely booked you know all through october But we encourage our members not to wait for a school to call for a tour. Don't wait for the Cub Scouts to call for a tour. We don't expect them to call those organizations. But I show a picture of our company making a rescue at 2 o'clock in the morning out of an apartment building. They made seven rescues last summer. They did a phenomenal job, absolutely phenomenal. And I show a picture of them doing a ladder rescue. And then I flip it over to another picture of one of my members in a driveway with about four or five eight nine ish old kids playing street hockey in that driveway, and that's aggressive that is aggressive community interaction that we want. I want my members and our companies that when they're driving down the road and they see a group of kids to stop and say, "Hey, how's it going?" you know not in a creepy kind of way, you know but but you want them you want them stopping and saying hello you know especially when there's families around you know if the park's full why not pull in there and let the kids see the truck you know pull into the park when it's full pull into the park and let the, it takes 10 minutes literally 10 minutes the kids attention spans aren't that long it doesn't matter you're not going to be there for an hour okay if you are fantastic but by and large what I've what I've Basically, I put a 20-minute limit on it when I was a captain, and we were never there 20 minutes. But what ends up happening is the kids look at the trucks for about six minutes. Time this. I'm not kidding. Time these interactions. You'll be shocked what happens. The kids will look at the truck for about six minutes, depending on the age. If they're at the park, they're usually pretty young, so six minutes. You'll spend another 15 minutes talking to the parent about more specific things about the truck. They want to know how much water does it hold. Well, how much hose? How big's that hose? You'll spend more time discussing with the parent than you will showing the kid the truck, and that's aggressive community interaction. And it's also, I mean, let's face it; those are the people that pay our bills, they pay our salaries, and they don't have to wait until October rolls around when they accompany their kids with the Boy Scouts. It's way less intimate. And let's face it, they they come in at six p.m. right around dinner time, and we're shooing them out the door as quick as we can get them out because we're starving right it's just it's just a way to again I wanted to find other way we have to be aggressive in many other avenues than just crossing the threshold that's the easy stuff it's easy to do that and we need to get better as a fire service at doing the hard being aggressive at the harder things
1: you're a pretty fit dude I mean I think as you raise in the ranks of a department especially to the chief level less and less of your ability to do the job is is reliant on your physical fitness but you have kept that up like what is what does that mean to you and like how important is that for everybody else because
0: i think too you know you can sit around like a table of your peers at that level and it's pretty much accepted it don't matter You can be out of shape.
1: No, but if I'm if I if you're my chief, you're the chief. The line loves
0: it. The line, the line. (laughs) That's what the line wants. They want somebody that is still willing to put themselves in their gear, uh, and especially a chief that you know is still in shape.
1: But if you're the chief and you can pass the physical fitness assessment we have to do every year,
0: then every firefighter has nothing to say when they don't pass it. Exactly solves the problem right there, right? Yeah, can't bitch that it's unfair,
1: right? Because you're like, well, I did it.
0: Yeah, and I beat your time. So you know, coming up on a lengthy career, what does fitness mean to you? It scares me to death, I'll be honest,
2: especially that I'm off the truck. Um, It it, it worries me and I have to make a concerted effort to do it. I am not, nor have I ever been a weightlifter. It's just something that I've always been gangly. You can look at me, I'm tall, thin, gangly guy. And and it's funny because my son is just like me and it just bothers him to death. And I said, I said, son, just think of it. It's 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 a much longer road to getting fat, you know. When you're this skinny, this young, you know. I said you got good genes. I said you'll appreciate this when you're forty. And uh, but it's it's uh, it's basically it's again it's choices. For me, I run. I I like to run. I will do some uh, like yesterday. I did the stairs here, and I thought I was going to die because of the altitude. And I did uh, push-ups at the bottom. And I think it's just activity you do have to have some organized planned exercise of some sort just to be able to focus on, if you're still in the truck, there's things you have to be able to do and you're not going to get that, uh, with walking around the block. Okay. However, if walking around the block is all you do and you do it five days a week, that's fantastic. But fitness for me is bottom line is a, for my own health. I'd like to say it's so that I can do the job until I retire. But what I figured out is that if I take care of myself, not in a selfish way, not in that priority way, but if I take care of myself and my fitness is important to me because I want to be an active grandparent, I want to be healthy. When I die, I hope it's like, boom, oh, well, he was pretty. He was pretty healthy till the day he went. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be, you know, an invalid in bed. I mean, that could be, but I, I would hope that maybe, you know, I just die in my sleep or I fall over doing whatever I like doing, and I'm gone. Um, I don't want to suffer and and struggle with the people that we see in our careers that have made such bad choices for an entire lifetime. If I do that, I'm going to be able to do my job, and so it's just about choices. It's. I still have an ice cream here and there. I like to have a beer. I like to, but it's all moderation, you know, and you have to find a, a happy medium somewhere that it's still not going to be easy. Like you said, how many times you get out of bed that you want to work out? One. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's the day you decide you, you're you going to do it, right? And so the, the same thing for me. Yesterday, I didn't have, I'm at this conference and I'm not, I'm not really doing anything. I did some work on the computer and it's like, I really need to get outside. And it it was kind of rainy and cold and it wasn't appealing when you look out the window to go run on the street. But I, in the back of my mind, I know the goals I've set for myself and fitness, like doing some ultra runs, trail runs and my weight. I'll be honest. I don't remember when it hit me and when I started to pay attention to it, but my, we get those annual physicals through our fire department and they're fantastic. I, it's, you can't put a price on what that does and the things that it can save you from. And I've always been pretty good. Cause we do, there's a medical portion and a physical fitness portion. You push ups, planks, uh, standing high jump thing, where you got to try and touch a ceiling. Um, you do a, uh, a stress test cardi, you know, t- treadmill test. And that changes what kind of test you get so many years, but it's still guys hate it. Some of them do. I'm thankful that we're blessed to have that system. It was a few years ago, maybe even longer, that I was, my waist, even being as active as I am, because it went back to diet, and then you have ebbs and flows in your workout. And I had a lot of ebbs or whatever the down part is. I don't know if it's flow, whatever whatever, ed, whatever ebb and flow part is like doing nothing. <laughs> I had some long periods of that. And, and so my waist, was increasing like a quarter inch every year it doesn't seem like a lot at the time and then i started in my head i was like that's bad that's bad you know and it's and it that's how it catches up on you because the rest of me is not getting like that it's just right here but then you get it in the waste now what you got risk factors for heart disease You've got risk factors for kidney and liver problems now. I mean, all those things that accompany uh, waist weight, um, which is what my dad carries, my grandpa carried it. And so those fitness goals kind of keep me at that status quo. I, I, I'm i not disciplined enough with my diet. I'm never going to have six-pack abs, no matter how many electrodes I put on there. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, so it's one of those deals where you have to stay disciplined and and keep working just to remain. So I got 36 inch pants and they're a little loose right now, but my goal is to not ever have to get out of 36 inch pants. Whatever works for you, that's worked for me. Now I've never gone. I've boy, they've been tight. I'm not gonna lie. I've had a, I've had some times in those ebbs and flows where they've been oh boy. You know, you got to get on it. Luckily, that's a little bit easier to lose, you know. So, but they don't make 35s. I think it's discrimination, kind of, you know. <laughs> 34s are too small, 36s are too big. Those gangly guys can't win, you know. So, I, I, you know, I just think it's discipline. I think it's having some end goals. And I think, you know, like you do in a lot of exercise systems, is having chunks of things, right? Having, okay, I'm going to do. This week I'm going to do two days of this or whatever and break it up into chunks. Don't make that such a – like, I want to run a 100-mile trail run. And and that's a long-term, at least 12 months away for me. That's hard to stay motivated for. And so I drive my wife batty uh, because when I go home, I turn on YouTube, and I watch the same running videos from Western States and Leadville 100 and the hard – I watch the same guys, and she's she's like, you're crazy. I made the guys watch it work too, yeah. And I and I listen to the podcast. Hey, I'm the chief, you know. At lunchtime, I sit at the head of the table. I
0: turn on YouTube
2: and we watch running videos for at least forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah. It might catch on. I don't know.
0: So tomorrow you're back on stage again, and you'll be presenting drilling on the street. So give us a little preview of what that is, what to expect.
2: Yeah, I'll give you a specific example that I'll use tomorrow. And uh, when I was a captain, I was working a trade day at a different house than I was usually at. So I had a different driver, different backstepper. And we got called to an area that is on the edge of our district. And we were second due. And it was supposed to be a kitchen fire in this little, it was a Sonic restaurant is what it was. First dude gets there. The fire is really small. It's its put out by the staff. Really, almost You couldn't really tell there was a fire in the building. And so as three or four of us converge into the parking lot that first two company officer disregards everybody. So right away, my, uh, my driver's like getting ready to turn out of the parking lot. I said, no, 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 Go around the building. And so we're, we're pulling into the side that would normally have the drive up part, you know, under the canopy thing. And so we drive around all the way around the back, make a full almost 360 around the building. I say, stop, stop right here. And he's like, what? He goes, we, we got called off. I said, no, no, we're going to check the roof. Well, they said, we're good. I said, drop the ladder rack. And the backstepper uh, was like, what are we doing? I said, when's the last time you uh, put a ground ladder and to a roof, a parapet wall on a roof on a- off a ground ladder? Never. He'd never done it, ever. It's a different animal doing a parapet wall on a ground ladder than coming off an aerial device. Totally different. It's, it's not as easy as it sounds. And so it, it, why my driver was mad, number one, he didn't want to do it. Uh, wasn't not my crew right not my crew but um, I, I made them set it up in the bushes along the side of the building and so we did it and it's like listen when's the when's the next time if we don't stop when's the next time you're gonna throw a 35 foot ground ladder on a parapet wall and make and make the roof well I'm probably not exactly and so those are the kinds of things I started doing. You know, We would pull up on an alarm sounding at 9 o'clock at night because my collective – and I'm not anti-union at all. I shift up for six years, negotiate three contracts, but we can't train at night uh, through the CBA. And people can – whatever you think about it, it is what it is. So if I got an alarm sounding at 9 o'clock at night and there's no key – the keyhole – the Knox box doesn't work and there's not a key and I got to wait for a keyholder, We're training. So we, I would have the, I had a, I had the same thing at a doctor's building, parking lots, empty. I'm on a Quint, same exact thing. we made a circle around the building, talked about how, how we would force each door, what we thought was behind it. And at the same time, you're checking the building for smoke. You're doing your job instead of just sitting in the cab of the truck. And then we talked about positioning where we would put the truck. And then we had them set up the ladder and start spotting the roof. Right there. while we waited for a keyholder? It's like why sit on your butt and do nothing? I mean, you've got an opportunity. Number one, he's a can. He's he's a dr- going to be a driver real soon. And that was even a few years ago. He still hasn't been a driver yet through attrition. But he he's next up. He's close. Uh, he could be emergency driver. It's nighttime. All right. It looks different at nighttime than it does a day as far as perception and the distance for that ladder. And there's he can't really hurt anything. There's no cars uh I guess he could screw up the building, but I mean, we laddered, we we went up and checked the roof, checked the HVAC units and all that stuff. And so we started doing those kinds of things. Interestingly enough, the backstepper at the Sonic uh, got promoted a couple of years ago and uh, he goes out he gave me some pictures of them going to an apartment complex where they were playing with different stretches from the road. So they were, you know, pulling the hose up with the pike pole and tying it, doing all that stuff on their own. And, and that's, that's what you're trying to do, and if so many times when we wait till it's on the schedule, number one, it's easy to cancel. Number two, it's usually sterile. Even when I was a training officer, as good as we try to make it, really, we're always a little bit in a hurry because we're trying to get as many companies through as we possibly can, and so and it's a little bit sterile. Uh, it's, it's not from the cuff. So I always liked making our members stop wherever we were. We go to a hotel, stretch up the middle you know, had outdoor balconies and we would make like hallway stretches at the hotel. Um, we would go to apartment complexes with rope and figure out how much line we needed. If a tenant would come to the door and ask what we were doing, I would tell them and I'd say, hey, would you let me come into your apartment and take the rope to the back? Your back? Oh yeah, come on. And then you get a true sense and you get to see the layout of, maybe you just got moved to that still area. You haven't been on an EMS call in that building or whatever. And we found some really interesting stuff by going into those buildings. Something that we thought, and tomorrow I'll show a picture of it, it's a, it's an apartment building, and it's got a door here and a door here. And if you looked at it, when I see you, nobody listening to this can see the door here and the door here. <laughs> I just figure my hands are out here showing you where the doors are, nobody can see it, right? <laughs> anyway, if you're looking at this building, there's two doors. And if, if you can picture in your mind that each, if you walked in each door, there would be a foyer, and you would have apartments on both sides on the fir- on the first and second floors. Is that a good enough representation? And so from the outside, that's what you look. It's very symmetrical, and that's what you would think. But the door on the right, if you walked in, there was only an apartment on the right on the first floor and only an apartment on the right on the second floor. There were no apartments on the left. So the windows that were next to that door were from the unit on the left, not the right. It, it Completely contrary to what you have experienced from going in these buildings and nobody knew it and those are the things that when you when you drill while you're on the street that you learn and i think you get way better doing it like that
0: i remember this time and i think you might have been there craig uh we were on this car into a building
1: nighttime right
0: yeah we and he had to wait for a board up company for hours hours it was just what are we doing and (laughs)
1: Because everything was done, like right. Yeah,
0: everything was done, and it was was safe. Yeah, we roped it off, and then it's like, you know what? All right, we had a new guy on the rig. We'll start throwing some ladders, and it was dark, and it changed things. Right? It's not. It's not your sterile environment.
1: Well, I know what what every click of the ladder I need for every window out at the academy. Right? right? Like it's not. It's too sterile.
0: Yeah, so I think there's a huge benefit of. You know, when you have that time and you're not going anywhere, you can't go anywhere. Well, why not do your training then? I mean, yeah, it's it, it's the most realistic. You get it. You get an acquired structure right there for free. No, you know, the same guy
2: that was on the back step at the Sonic building was on was driving for me one day, and we had a a, a candidate driver, a different one. And so we were we, went, we were coming back from a call, and I said, "Hey, pulling this strip mall." And so at, at this point, he gets it. He he knows what's going on, and he's, he's good with it. And so we, we've got the candidate driver driving, and we're, I said, pull in the strip mall. We pull in, and I said, okay, tell me about the building. Where's the FTC? Where, you know, what are you going to do? And so he's talking, and I said, where's the hydrant? He goes, ah. And down the back on the far end, there's a hydrant, and it's sitting down on the ground. I said, okay, let's, let's turn this thing. Well, what if we screw the water pressure up? I said, it'll come back. Listen, if we break a main, we're the fire department. They're not going to send us a bill, Okay. They're, they're going to come fix it. But you know what? If, if, it's, if it's bad, let's figure it out now instead of when we have a fire. So we, he, he goes, and the caps wouldn't come off. We could not get the caps off the fire hydrant. And so we called American Water, and sure enough, they were like welded on or something crazy, and they had to replace that plug. But that's the kind of stuff that, that I used to like to do. Not everybody else liked it all the time. But for me, gosh dang, you know, we do we do 48-hour shifts – and when you're not running a lot of calls, you know, typically we run about 12,000 calls a year out of three stations. So we're pretty busy, but there are some days are slow. And so you, you like to go do something, but more than anything, um, I had a, a, a healthy fear of, um, getting caught. Uh, I always had a fear and I don't know why, I, I'm not sure where it came from. I'm sure it was instilled in me by other officers. Um, uh, but you know, I, I just always had a fear of getting caught and I could tell you story after story after story when I was a captain of things that shouldn't be fires that were you know calls that came in that didn't sound like anything that we had to go to work and I never got caught I never got caught and always and we had to check the residence one day uh, it was a one engine response I think it was like a haze in the kitchen or something of a re- of a house and we bunked up, always bunked up, and SCBA, just like we're going to a fire for a check, check to residence, And I'm not kidding you. We pulled down the street, and there's black smoke pumping out the front door. And the person on the back was not on my shift. He had been on a different shift with a different captain. Interestingly enough, the only reason he bunked out and put a tank on, because I did. If I wouldn't have, he wouldn't have. And the only reason I know is because he told me. He goes, my captain never would have put his gear on. We just would have gone. Pull up, black smoke pumping out the front door. We we ducked in with a water can, and it was a kitchen fire that got up into the cabinets, and we got it all knocked down, you know, really quick. The the lady's like little kid had taken his action figures and put them in this gas oven and turned it on, and uh, poof, you know, and so it, uh, up it went. Boy, she was not happy at all. That poor kid, and not at all. But it, it just goes back to. When you train on the street, because if we drilled on the street, unless it was super hot, we were in gear. You know, before you climb that ladder, we were already geared up because we were going to a fire call. But, you know, do it as real as you possibly can while you're on the street. And so I'm happy to say that that one backstepper has a captain now, and he does the same kind of stuff. So it's kind of neat to watch.
0: Worst case scenario, it's another
1: rep. I mean, right? Yeah. And sometimes it catches you out of your norm, right? Like you're driving home from the store.
0: Do you remember when we used to do that? We it, it, Basically, the rule on the rig was anybody at any point in any seat on the rig could say, if we weren't on a call, right. any time could say, all right, stop the rig and have a scenario and drill the other guys. Didn't yeah. mean if it was the back seat, drill on the front seat. That was really cool because it was like, all right, pull over here. Uh, you got to you gotta get in your gear real quick and pull an inch three-quarter to the Charlie side and mask up.
1: It- Just like like that. And I'd, maybe you felt different because you were in the front seat, but it, it felt like it empowered the back seat too. Because it could be the new guy, and everyone else would have to.
0: Everybody had ownership.
1: Yeah, it just felt uh, you felt more a part of the crew, doing stuff like that.
0: Well, and and you also knew like, hey, if I'm gonna surprise somebody, you know you're getting it. You're too. gonna get it too, and it's not like I got you. It's. Okay. Well, you know, like it, it's fair. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna surprise you. It's gonna come from me. If we make mistakes, I mean, it just the, the, culture that bred is huge.
1: Yeah.